We are continuing in the book of Daniel, and this week we are going to start chapter 3. We finished chapter 2 last week. But before we go into chapter 3, I want to just go over some principles about successful prayer, because last week was all about prayer, saving them from that terrible situation that they were in, with Nebuchadnezzar threatening them. So, what are some of the principles that we need to follow to have a good prayer life, to have God answering our prayers? Well, I've got a few here. So the first one that we see from the book of Daniel, as an example of Daniel and Shadrach and Abednego and Michelle's life, is to live a pure or separated life. Now, why is this important? Because if you live for yourself, you're going to be focused on yourself and you're not going to be asking for things that are part of God's plan. You'll be seeking things for your own kingdom and not God's kingdom. And those kind of selfish prayers will never be answered. You don't want them to be answered because they're deadly. So what about Daniel? Well, he lived a separated life. In chapter 1, verse 8, we read, He would not defile himself with the king's meat and his wine. And here's an analogy that will help us to understand this worldliness versus separation. God is always speaking. God doesn't stop speaking. But (laughs) imagine you've got wax in your ears. The world is like wax in your ears. It's plugged our spiritual ears. And in Matthew 13, it says that the cares of this world and the lust for riches choke out the word of God. We become deaf to God's voice. So God is speaking. The question is, are we listening? Or are our ears so plugged with the things of this world that we can't tune into his frequency, that we are deaf to the still, small voice of the Spirit? Now here's a little story that helps us to get a hand on this. An Indian was walking down Wall Street with a fellow stockbroker, a businessman who had grown up on a reservation. He suddenly stopped and said, Did you hear that? Hear what? his colleague asked. Listen, he said, walking a few steps to a gutter and picking up a little cricket. How in the world, among all these people and hustle and bustle and horns and traffic, did you hear the sound of a single cricket? his friend asked. It all depends on what your ears are tuned into. Watch this, he said, as he tossed a quarter onto the sidewalk. As it hit, everybody stopped. So, no one heard the cricket, but they all heard the quarter. It's 25 cents. So, drop a 20-cent piece or a 50-cent piece on the sidewalk, on the footpath, then obviously people will go, Oh, I know that sound, and they'll hear it. So, it all depends on what you're listening for. Does God speak? Yes. But the problem is that our ears can be so filled with the sounds of the world that we don't hear his voice. And so Daniel said, no parting for me, no seeking what I want. I'm going to seek the Lord. And that's why he was in a position to hear from the Lord. Now, another principle that we find in Daniel and also in other parts of the Bible is expectation or faith. Okay, So, give me a day, Daniel said, and I will show you the interpretation. That's confidence. That's faith. That's expectation. Daniel had a good relationship with God. He knew that God would answer prayers which are according to his will. So Daniel knew that God would speak to him. 
So when you ask the Lord for his guidance on or his word, separation is where it begins. Expectation or faith is the next step. You've got to believe the Lord is going to speak. So let's read James 1, 5 to 8 together. It says, If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. And I've highlighted the words there, do not waver. That means do not doubt. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. So, expectation, faith. It's all about not wavering. It's all about, well, I trust that God is going to do this. So if I really believe the Lord is going to speak to me in my morning devotions or when I'm at Bible study, have a pen, paper ready. Or, like me, have your iPad ready and type. It doesn't matter. James says the person who doesn't believe that the Lord will speak will not receive anything from him concerning wisdom and direction. Therefore, when you have your morning devotions, don't be lazy and half-hearted and saying, oh, I wonder if there's something in the Bible for me today but come eagerly and expectantly. Expect God to reveal something to you, to tell you something, to show you something, to speak to you. Also, remember that we need to be patient in prayer. Don't open your Bibles and, well, I've read one verse and God hasn't spoken to me yet. It doesn't work like that. Daniel prayed for 21 days before his prayer was answered at one stage. And imagine if he said, oh, that's enough. It's been 20 days of praying now. If prayer is not answered, I give up. He would have missed out on so much that revelation that God gave him, that prophecy that God gave him. And we would have missed out too. It wouldn't have been written for us. So God promises to answer our prayers. So in faith, persevere. So when we have a crisis, we need to follow the example of Daniel and his friends and take the matter to the Lord in prayer. And someone said, faith is living without scheming. So we're talking about expectation, getting our prayers answered. Faith is living without scheming. That means planning, looking to do things by your own strength. Someone called Sarah did that and got her into trouble. Remember that? With Hagar? And faith brings glory to God. Daniel and his friends didn't take the credit. They couldn't take the credit for what happened because it came from the hand of God. Now I've got a verse here. Psalm 50 verse 15, to help us have a basis for our faith that God will answer our prayers. It's Psalm 50 verse 15. It says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's a promise. So this is not something I'm making up. And A.W. Tozer says, Whatever God can do, faith can do. And whatever faith can do, prayer can do when it is offered in faith. An invitation to prayer is, therefore, an invitation to omnipotence, for prayer engages the omnipotent God and brings him into our human affairs. In other words, what's not humanly possible becomes possible because God is involved. He can do anything. The third principle after separation and expectation is cooperation. So Daniel went to his friends and said, let's seek the Lord together. So over and over in the Bible, God tells us that we are not to live in isolation, but to live in community. We are a 
family. We are a body of believers who work together. And Jesus said that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he would be there in their midst, Matthew 18.20. Now, it doesn't mean he's not with us when we're alone. Of course he is. But there's a special dynamic that comes into play when we seek the Lord with our brothers and sisters. It's all part of his plan to develop a body that is linked together and dependent upon one another. That's why we pray for each other. We don't just pray for ourselves, we pray for each other. Now, the next principle is desperation. This is kind of like understanding how important it is. Why was this important for Daniel and his friends? Because if they didn't get the interpretation for this dream, they would be killed. And I think one of the reasons that often we don't seek the voice of the Lord is because we don't think our situation should be classified as desperate. We don't think it's important to pray. And think about in Acts 12, the early church. You know, Peter and John had been arrested and then let go. They'd been beaten a bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, now if Peter and James be arrested. Oh, yeah. God, I pray you'll get them out of prison. Thanks, God. And then James gets sawn in half by Herod, and they go, <gasps> let's pray. <laughs> you know, we need to pray. So, and they did. And they all prayed with intensity. And guess what? The angel let Peter out of prison. All right. So a bit of desperation in there. Understanding how important prayer is. Understanding our predicament. And I'll explain a bit more about that now. I've got a quote from John Corson. We never know what lies around the corner in our lives, in our vacations, with our children, with our families. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Therefore, we can't afford to take life casually. James tells us that we don't have because we don't ask. 4 verse 2. Kids get into trouble unnecessarily because parents aren't praying desperately. Divorces and separations occur tragically because when things were going smoothly, the couples weren't praying together consistently. I'm convinced all kinds of trouble comes our way unnecessarily because we think we don't need to pray. That was a quote from John Corson. Scripturally, we need to realize that we are at war. What does Satan do? Goes around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. We need to keep our guard up. We need to keep fighting. So we keep our guard up and our needs bent. Shields up, needs bent. Yeah? Prayerful attitude. Use the sword of the Spirit. Shield of faith. Breastplate of righteousness, etc. So we need to be building like a, a wall of protection around our families and around our lives personally. And I think it's probably a good prayer to pray, Lord, show me the dangers that are around me so I get this urgency in me to pray. And I think if we realize the dangers and the enemy's schemes that were going on, then we would be praying more too. So are you a proud person? Most people will say no. But if you're not praying, you are proud. Why? You think you can do it yourself. Praying demonstrates our dependence on God. Now, the fifth principle is communication. Daniel was given an answer to his prayer in order that he might pass it on to Nebuchadnezzar. Another example in Genesis 18, and the Lord and the two angels are going towards Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy the city. The Lord says to Abraham, Shall I not show Abraham the things that I am going to do? Why? 
That's a question there. Shall I not show Abraham the things I'm going to do? Why? For I know him that he shall command his children and make my ways known to them. So why did God want to reveal his will to Abraham about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah and other things? Because I know that he will make this known to his children. He will teach his children. He's going to pass on what I tell him to his children, to other people. So it's not about us. Oh, wow, I've received a dream. I feel really special. No, there's a purpose for God giving us stuff, and that is to be a blessing to others. We need to pass things on. Now, Hebrews 1, verses 1 and first half of 2. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. So, when do the last days begin? Jesus. The ultimate word concerning anything you need to know about life and eternity is found in listening to and learning from Jesus. That's where it starts. And then after you've been in touch with the living word, you'll be in a position to receive the directive word concerning your specific situation. You need to be in that relationship with him. So learn of Jesus, listen for him, believe that he will speak to you because the Bible promises that he will. So that was a a bit of a recap and I just wanted to focus on prayer because that was a big part of last week's story with Nebuchadnezzar demanding that the wise men uh, give the interpretation to the dream. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into chapter 3. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, help us to be prayer warriors, to use those five principles of live a pure and separated life, to expect you to answer, to pray with other people, to understand why it's urgent, and then communicate what you've shown us to be an encouragement to other people. So I just pray that you'll help us to take our prayer life seriously. And uh, I know I struggle with my own prayer life. It's relatively easy to read the word, but to to get on my knees and to pray is more difficult. So I pray you help us all to become more fervent and more effective and more disciplined in our prayer life, to make that time to spend with you. Daniel spent time with you three times a day, every day, Lord. Lord, a good example for us to follow. Jesus rose early in the morning. Help us to be godly men and women so we can be effective in your kingdom. We can fight and not give up and not let the enemy walk all over us, Lord, and devour us and devour our marriages and our relationships and everything else. Pray in Jesus' name. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 3. We'll read through the chapter. This is the fiery furnace. So it says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So all these people, the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, 
psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp and lyre in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in sympathy to all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lion, psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated, and he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men, who were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counsellors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning, fiery furnace, and spoke, saying, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So, this has been how many years? About 20. 20 years. 20 years since Nebuchadnezzar said to Daniel, Your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, after Daniel interpreted the dream. So, some time has gone past. And this image thing must have been sticking in his head, and he must have been thinking, I don't like that dream. I don't like that my kingdom's going to be destroyed and another kingdom's going to come up in its place. And so what does he do? He does something that reveals the true state of his heart, his pride. He made an image of gold, and it was all gold. (laughs) Sixty cubits high, six cubits wide. That's nine feet by ninety feet or three metres by 30 metres. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, in recent years, guess what? Archaeologists have found or excavated in the plain of Dura a pedestal 40 feet high and 20 feet wide. So 40 feet, what's that? About 12 metres or so? Big enough to be surrounded by many, many people and to have a good look at this statue. And as I said before, it's only gold. And he's thinking, this represents my empire. My empire is forever. Verse 2, And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather all the rulers in the land and to come and worship this statue, to come to the dedication of this image. And so they all come, all these governors and councillors and treasurers, etc. And then this herald cries out, to you is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. So, who is it to? It's all people, okay? And when the music sounds, fall down and worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So basically, if you don't bow down to this 94 image, you're going to face death. Verse 7. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn and all the other instruments, all the people, nations and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now it's interesting. Why did there need to be music? Why did Nebuchadnezzar have to use music to cause people to bow down? Well, music can be good. 
and music can be bad. So music is a powerful tool. Music can lead us to worship Satan. Music can lead us to worship God. Satan was a worship leader, I believe. It indicates that in Ezekiel. And uh, before he fell, he led all of heaven in worship. So God created music and ordained it as a means of praise. And music in itself is not evil. We'll be singing and playing music in heaven. So music is a battlefield. It can either motivate us to worship God, or it can motivate us to go into idolatry. So be wise and make sure that your kids are listening to something that's good for them because if they're not listening to the right music, you can lead them off quite easily into the wrong way. As someone said, there is always a Nebuchadnezzar striking up the band. <laughs> uh, verse 8. And now some of these Chaldeans. Remember these Chaldeans? They should have been a bit more thankful. Who was it that saved their lives? Daniel and his three friends. Okay, But they must have forgotten about that. And now they don't like these people. Remember, the world does not like you. They are jealous of you. And now they come and say, Oi, those Jews that you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, those three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not paying due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. So these guys, they knew the command, but they said, No. We are not going to compromise. Nothing has changed in their lives. They're not going to defile themselves. We're not going to go along with this. We're not going to bow down in Nebuchadnezzar. And someone said, the Babylonian beboppers strike up the band. Now, verse 13, the Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Hmm, where's Daniel? We don't know. Most commentators believe he was on government business outside of the area. Some people say it's a picture of the church being taken up and delivered from the tribulation. And we'll get into that a bit later. There's a really good parallel there. Alright, verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, you three guys, that you do not serve my gods or worship this image? And he gives them one more chance. And he says at the end there, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Oh man, that's the epitome of pride. I am the most powerful God in the world. There's no God more powerful than me. You better watch out. Who's the God who's going to deliver from my hands? Man, this power really got to his head. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he conquered countries. He looted riches, he captured people, but he allowed people to worship their own gods. He was considered very liberal and generous in that regard. He let people worship their gods, but he also wanted them to worship his. Alright? And that's a very common tactic of the enemy. Yeah, you can go to church, he says, but on Friday night you have to watch that movie, or during the week read that book, or go to the bar you need to bow down to me during the week. Go to church on Sunday, that's fine. But during the week, you bow down to me. You do what I want you to do. You have that bad attitude. You keep fighting. You keep wanting your own way. Okay? You bow down to me. And then on Sunday, you can go to church again. And so the enemy gives us the freedom to worship God, <laughs> hoping that we still feel okay about bowing down to his idols. 
And that's always his way. It's compromise. We'll come back to that again later. Verse 16. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So the two words here, no compromise. Very simple. No compromise. Do not let anything in your life that is a compromise. There's temptations that will come, and the people will say, it's not going to hurt. No compromise. Now, there's an important lesson here. They say God is able to deliver us. But then they add, even if he decides not to, we're still not going to bow down. So God is able. They have faith that God can. But they're submitting to God's will concerning whether he intended to save them. They weren't doubting God's ability. But they were submitting to his sovereignty. And there's a couple of verses in Hebrews 11, 33 and 34. It says, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. So, but others, what does it say? They were sawn in two and, and all kinds of other things happened to them. So God can deliver if it's his will. But you know what? They also said, God will deliver us from you. If they died, it's also true that they were delivered from Nebuchadnezzar. So either way, whether they face a a physical deliverance where they're not hurt by this fire, saved from the fire, or they actually die, they're still delivered. They're still in God's kingdom. They're still going to spend forever with the Lord. So what do they have faith in? Well, it wasn't faith in faith, but they had faith in their father. They had their eyes on their father. So when we pour out our request to God and say, if you decide not to heal me, bring me that financial windfall or save my business, it doesn't matter. All I want is your will, and that's true faith. And prayerfully, I pray that we can all learn to pray like that. If it's your will, I pray this when it comes to our needs in our situations. Uh, Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So he thought well of them and now he doesn't. They were his like favorite, you know, trusted governors or or whatever position they had. Because remember Daniel asked for them to give um, high positions. They've been working hard for 20 years and Nebuchadnezzar got no reason to speak against them. And now he's really angry with them. And so in a minute or in an instant, his attitude towards him has changed. And in this world, nothing is certain except our relationship with God. Don't count on people. The attitude towards you can change in a minute, in an instant. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who was in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And fully clothed, their 
thrown into this burning fiery furnace, which is actually a massive kiln, basically, where they used to refine metals and bake bricks and stuff like that. And it was so hot that the soldiers who put them into the fire were themselves killed. And verse 23... And they fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fall down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counsellors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. So, the only thing that burnt was what? The ropes, that's right. The ropes were burnt off by this fiery trial surrounding them. So that's why Peter tells us to rejoice in the fiery trials, because they burn off the cords, the things in our lives, which paralyze us, which keep us from fully experiencing God's joy and his peace in our lives. So 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, one of the key verses here. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. So, What's the result of going through trials? Joy. One of my favorite sayings is we don't know that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. And so I see trials as a loving act by loving God to free us of the things that are God's substitutes. Things that we're trusting in instead of God. Things that actually rob us of our joy and bring us into bondage. And they can be good things like family or ministry, or they can be sinful things like lust or materialism. Either way, they are idols which are keeping us from experiencing God's love to the full. Remember Jesus said that you may experience my love to the full. Abundant life, okay? There's many examples in history where people have received greater revelation of God when going through trials. John the Apostle on the island of Patmos gets the book of Revelation, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul, writing the prison epistles, John Bunyan writing Pilgrim's Progress from a prison cell, separated from his family. All these people and more were in their own fiery furnace and all experienced the presence of the Son of God with them. And the same is true for us today. The second half of verse 25 says, And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. How many did we throw into the fire? Nebuchadnezzar asked. Three, came the answer. Then how come I see four? and the fourth is like the Son of God. This is really important. The fiery trial is a testimony to a sceptical, angry unbeliever who now sees Jesus in the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So for us, it's our neighbors, it's our colleagues, it's people in the community, it's our families, fellow students and co-workers. They're all watching us. And when we go through fiery trials... It's their opportunity to see Jesus. We'll come back to that later as well. And verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, and basically saying, Servants of the Most High God, 
come out and come here. And then they came out. And the king's counsellors and, and all the other people there gathered together and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power and the hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected and the smell of fire was not on them. Now I don't know if you've been around fires much, it stinks when you've been around smoke and you, you can't hide that smell, but these guys had no smell. So in addition to burning off the ropes, the things that we depend on, the idols that we have, and letting them burn to the ground, a very painful process, but a very necessary process, and letting others see Jesus, fiery trials are an opportunity for us to draw closer to the Lord than we would have otherwise. And it's interesting, these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they'd rather be in the fire with Jesus than out of the fire without him. It's not like, oh, we're free, good, I can walk out of here now. No, they stayed in the fire, and they didn't come out until Nebuchadnezzar ordered them to come out. And when do we really see the Lord? Well, more often than not, it's when they're in the midst of a fiery trial. Now, I mentioned something in prophecy before. So, prophetically, I believe, chapter 3, well, it's a picture of the time of the Jews. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Take a stand in the fiery trial of the tribulation period. So think of these guys as representing the nation of Israel going through the tribulation. So according to Revelation 17 and 18, in the end times, there's going to be a unified religious system and economic system, both called Babylon. Where are these three friends now? They're in Babylon, a unified religious system and economic system. And just as Nebuchadnezzar made an image and commanded the people to bow to it in the tribulation period at the three and a half year mark, halfway through, the Antichrist will make an image and command everyone to bow down to it. Now, initially, Nebuchadnezzar treated Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego well. He promoted them, was nice to them, and the Antichrist is going to come as a man of peace. But halfway through, he's going to show his true colors when he makes an image of himself and sets it up in the temple. So I'd just like to read a few verses from Revelation to you. Revelation 13, verse 15 to 18. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except the one who has a mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's statue, six cubits wide, six cubits high, and six instruments. So it's a good little analogy or type of the Jews going through the tribulation period. You can build on that more too, but I won't now. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies. So that frustrated means to go against. They've gone against the king's word. They've said no. They've no compromise. That they should not serve nor worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other god who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So, they've come out from the furnace unharmed. Nebuchadnezzar is amazed, but he's still not converted. He's saying there is no other god that can deliver like this. He should have stopped with there is no other god. (laughs) He's still got his own gods in his head. But he'll come to that place later. Before we finish, I just want to quickly go through handling the heat. How, as believers, do we handle the heat in our lives? And there's three principles here. I think all believers, if you ask them, have you ever gone through a difficult time? They would say, yes. All right. I think it's a universal thing. As a believer, we go through hard times at some stage in our lives. And I'm just going to read those verses again from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Now, if you go back a few chapters there to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, Peter gives us the reason why we need to go through these trials. It says, These trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Now, How do they used to purify gold back then? In a fiery furnace, yes. And what they would do is they would stir the liquefied gold in this really hot furnace, hot enough to melt the gold. And the smelter would stir this molten gold until all the impurities are gone. Now, how do you know that all the impurities are gone? You can look down and you can see your face in the gold. The smelter, the guy who's stirring this gold, would be doing this until he could see his reflection in this gold. Then he knows that it's pure. Okay? Now, Jesus is doing the same thing. He's putting us in the fiery furnace, and he's stirring us, so to speak, and he's waiting until he can see his reflection in us, until we become molded into his image. And that's the purpose of the fiery trials, is to transform us into his image, is to purify us, to cause our faith to be genuine, not wishy-washy, true. Now, three aspects I want to talk about just to finish off about going through the heat. When did these guys go through the trial? When they were slack and compromising and struggling or when they were walking well with the Lord? They were walking well with the Lord. Now, it would have been easy for them to back out to make excuses. They could have said to each other, Sure, we'll bow to Nebuchadnezzar's idol outwardly, but in our hearts we bow to the Lord. No. And they could have said so much. Surely, with all we've been through already, he'll understand our situation. And this isn't a big deal. So we bow to an idol. We can still live for the Lord. Or they could have said, 
We use this as an opportunity for even greater ministry. If we go along with Nebuchadnezzar's order, he'll leave us in positions of leadership and we can eventually impact more people for God. So all those compromised positions, people making, rationalizing and excusing their behavior. But these guys didn't do that. They said no compromise. They resisted all of those rationalizations and excuses and stood up when the trial came down. So understand that the Lord sends his trials most frequently, not when we're stumbling and struggling, but when he sees that we're doing well. So a good example, I think the best example of this is Job. Job, making sacrifices for his kids just in case they sin. What an awesome father, a man of faith. What does God do? He says, Satan, guess what? I've got someone who really loves me, someone who's faithful to me. And then he allows this whole testing process and Job comes through and Satan is shamed. Satan can't defeat him because he's got his faith in God. And Job comes through with a greater understanding and a greater revelation of who God is. So one of the lies that Satan gives us is that we go through hard times because God is angry with us. We must have done something to disappoint him. No, that's not it. Okay. God doesn't need to be angry with us if we sin. If one of your kids, or my kids, burns their hand on the stove, do I need to punish them? (laughs) I don't need to punish them, do I? No, but they've already learned that lesson. The consequences of their sin is usually enough to stop you wanting to do it again. And if not, you might need some more discipline, but that's not a fiery trial. It's when our kids are doing well that we want to challenge them and exhort them to go further, to do even better. So we're not going to, you know, if they're struggling in something, we're not going to say, oh, let's go the next step. No, no, no. You wait till they get stronger, then let's go the next step. And that's what the Father does with us. He waits till we're strong, and then he goes, all right, let's get stronger. Let's go the next step. Let's learn the next lesson in our lives. And that's one of the reasons why James would tell us to count it all joy when we face various trials, because it means the Father sees something in us worth building upon and improving. He's purifying us, refining us. Now, peace in the trial. This is the second point. We read in verse 24 that these three guys weren't running around in the fire trying to find a way out. They weren't taking their clothes off and trying to snuff out the flames. They weren't sitting down in a corner crying about their ordeal. They weren't striving. They weren't complaining. They were just walking around. They were calm and collected. Now, When the heat comes, when the going gets tough and the fire grows hot, what do we tend to do? We want to control the fire. We want to change our circumstances. So we work and manipulate and do all these things to change our circumstances to reduce the heat of the fire. We want to make our lives easy. Get rid of those nasty, fiery trials. But we can't. We can do that for a little while, but that fire is going to come back and it's going to burn. And we have to go through that trial eventually. Okay, It's going to get hotter eventually. So let the fire burn rather than try and put it out or cover it up. So when people come down to you, when they don't understand you, when things aren't working out, don't defend yourself, don't stand up for your rights, don't try to control the fire. Instead say, Lord, let the fire burn because I know that only what is not of you will burn the wood, the hay, the stubble, 
so to speak, the things in life that keep me from you, the things that aren't of you, but what is valuable will be purified and made even more beautiful and more valuable, and I'll be more useful. And the last one is fellowship through the trial. So I've talked about when do we go through trials? It's when we're strong, usually. We have peace in the trial. We don't try and change our circumstances. We just say, okay, I accept the circumstances. You bring it on, Lord. I'm going to trust you. And the last thing is fellowship. So there's three men in the fire. Uh Uh-oh, no, there's four. We put three in, but no, there's four. The fourth is like the Son of God. Why could they have peace? Why could they have this confidence? Because they were in the presence of God. The Lord was with them. What does God say or Jesus say in Hebrews 13.5? I will never leave you nor forsake you. This means he's with us in whatever fiery trial that comes our way. And if we look for him there, we will see him in a way we would never have seen him otherwise. So I emphasize that if we look for him. Because sometimes we go through the trials and we don't look for him. And we have to learn that lesson again. We make life hard for ourselves. Let's look for Jesus in the trial. Because we can understand things theologically. We can, yeah, I understand why Jesus does that. And I know why God does that. And I understand this verse. I understand that word. But it's not until we're actually in the trial that we actually experience it and it becomes real to us. That we finally know, truly know and experience that he's alive, that he's with us, that he's for us. Think of Stephen. is when he was being stoned, he looked up and saw the Son of Man, Jesus himself, welcoming him into the kingdom. Jesus was sitting down, work's finished, but Stephen, the first martyr, Jesus stands up to welcome him in. Okay, His face is like an angel. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of peace in the midst of a fiery trial. Paul, he was stoned at Lystra. The reference there is 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4, when Paul was stoned. He was caught up to heaven. He had this vision of heaven. So again, hard times can lead to greater revelation. Uh, John the Apostle on the island of Patmos received the book of Revelation. So when do people really see the Lord? Most often, it's not when we're cruising, but when we're cooking. (laughs) All right? And not only do we see the Lord in the hot and hard times, but others are able to see him as well. The Nebuchadnezzars of this world are not impressed when they see us win lotto. God bless us with lotto, who cares? They get jealous. That's not going to help them get to heaven. It's not going to show them much about God. But they're impressed when they see us going through the fire of hard times without panicking, without giving up. And they realize that that's humanly impossible. They must have someone helping them. It's Jesus. And just like they didn't come out of the fire until Nebuchadnezzar ordered them out, I pray that we can get to the place in our walk where we would rather be in the fire of hard times with the Lord than cruising in the shade with less or no awareness of his presence. just want to finish with one final thought. What about the wrath of God? Didn't Jesus save us from the fires of hell? Then why do I still experience the fires of trials? Well, Jesus went through a fire greater than anything you or I can comprehend when he went to the cross to shield us from the fires of hell. Now, I've got a little story here from Dr. Donald Barnhouse. He was a little boy living in the country, and there was a large oak tree, 
and it got hit by lightning and it, it basically exploded into a ball of flame. And it's next to a barn and the family was able to get most of the animals out of the barn before the barn caught fire and eventually collapsed. Now, the next day, little Donald, as a boy, went out and began to kick around in the ashes. And as he kicked one rather large clump, much to his surprise, four little chicks ran out in all directions. Can you imagine that? He later learned that the mother hen, trapped in the corner of the barn, did what mother hens instinctively do. She gathered her chicks under her wings, absorbed the heat herself, and died to save their lives. And that's what Jesus did for us. He has saved us. And he said on the hillside outside Jerusalem, 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 I would gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. But he has for us when he died on the cross. And that's Matthew twenty three thirty seven. So the Lord died to insulate you from the fires of judgment, but he will not insulate us from the fires of trials. He'll allow them to come into our lives to reveal himself both to us and to all the Nebuchadnezzars or unbelievers who are watching us. Father, thank you for this amazing chapter. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it brings. Help us to hold true, to have no compromise, and Lord, when the times get tough, to be looking for you in the trial, to be seeking a greater understanding of who you are, greater revelation of who you are. All through the Bible, when you put people in tough positions, you reveal yourself to them in a new way. In the Old Testament, all the names of God are basically given to people as they are experiencing a difficult situation. You reveal yourself in a new way, a new personal way. Lord, we want to grow close to you. We want to experience more of you. Teach us, Lord, to trust you, to have a genuine faith. And Lord, to realize that you are making our faith more genuine as we go through these trials. I pray that you will be glorified by the way we trust you and seek to submit to you. And Lord, that you will use us in this world to bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.